Well, good afternoon, everybody. Really great to see you. Uh, it really is uh, wonderful to see friends uh, from all over the world. Just feel absolutely massively blessed to know so many of you personally. And uh, it's just wonderful that we all uh, are able to be together. If you've got your Bibles, could you please turn to Philippians chapter 1? Philippians chapter 1 uh, and verse 1, my title uh, this afternoon uh, is Towards Maturity, Towards Maturity. Philippians chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affections of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word this afternoon, Lord, we pray that you would be with us. Lord, we pray that you would take the written word and you would cause it to come alive and you would apply it, Holy Spirit, to our hearts and minds. And all God's people said, Amen. I want to look at this passage uh, under three headings, the effect of grace, a means of grace, and growing in grace. The effect of grace, a means of grace, and growing in grace. Let's begin with the effect of grace. Let's remind ourselves of the context here. Paul is writing from a Roman prison uh, to a church that he helped start through the proclamation of the gospel in the city of Philippi. Philippi was a regional capital. It was a significant city, uh, a Roman colony, and uh, a place which had a, a kind of a high identity with their connection in Rome. Now, it's possible for us to be aware of the, the context of this letter and kind of want to move into uh, the heart of the letter, but it's just worth us logging a few things here at the beginning. The first thing I want us to notice is that uh, what we see on display here in Philippi really constitutes the obedience of the Great Commission. Even a, a superficial reading of the book of Acts or the New Testament epistles will tell us that the first followers of Christ understood obedience to the Great Commission to meaning planting local churches. It's just all over the New Testament. If we are to obey everything uh, that Christ has instructed, it doesn't simply mean conversion, but community. It doesn't just mean repentance and faith, but family. Although conversion is always a personal thing, 
It is never meant to be private. We find this in the opening verses here uh, in Philippi, and we see it through the New Testament. This week, we kind of gathered under the tagline of through the church, and it's just worth noting that the church isn't a sideshow. It's not just something that we kind of weirdly interested in because we happen to be church leaders, but it's just interesting to note that it really is the first fruit, the primary fruit of obedience to the Great Commission. Now, in these opening verses, we don't just simply see the fact of uh, a local church in existence, but we also get a description of what a mature local church looks like. In fact, Alex Mortier describes the opening verses in Philippians as follows, a remarkable full summary of the constitution of a New Testament church, a remarkably full summary of the constitution of of a New Testament church. So let's just think about this remarkably full summary. The first thing that we see about the church in Philippi, the first description that we get, is that it is made up of saints. Andrew, I need you to stand here and hold up the word saints. Now, Paul's description of saints, of course, uh, isn't a Catholic version of saints. He's not writing to this group that he thinks are like phenomenally holy and incredible. Uh, You may not be aware of this, but the bar of being a a saint in the Catholic Church is incredibly high. You actually have to perform multiple miracles after your death uh, in order to be declared a saint. It's a a very high bar. Uh, (laughs) But a a Protestant definition of saints uh, is, is, is more biblical and easier. In fact, it just requires us to respond to Jesus. The first thing that constitutes a New Testament church is that it is made up of individuals who have been uh, personally rescued by Jesus Christ. He He rescues them individually and he joins them to one another. They are saints because they are set apart for God. They are set apart for God based on Christ's finished work on the cross. It's His righteousness that has been imparted to them. They've been set apart for that, and that's why they are saints. The next thing that we see about this church is that it is in Philippi. Ronell is now going to stand up. Let's give Ronell a round of applause. Why is this important? Because, as Eugene Peterson says, the gospel is as much geographical as it is theological. It wasn't just that the gospel was uh, proclaimed, that the gospel was demonstrated in a particular place, in a particular time. What constituted this church wasn't just that it was made up of believers, but it was in a context. Paul isn't interested in just defining the gospel, he is concerned that the gospel would be appropriately contextualized in a particular place at a particular time. The next thing that we see about this church is that it has leadership. It is together with elders and deacons. Ashley. So it is made up together with elders and deacons. Now, there's just some things that's just worth noting with just this, this phrase. Uh, The first thing to note is that there was recognized leadership within the local church. Leadership isn't an evil 21st century mutation uh, that has kind of been defined by corporate America. It it existed right at the beginning of the early church. There was a recognized leadership. This leadership was together 
with the saints. It wasn't above the saints. This was a leadership that emerged from this community in order to serve this community. So it is together with the elders and deacons. And notice that both of these kind of leadership uh, recognized groups were teams, elders plural, deacons plural. Leadership in the New Testament church was a shared endeavor. It was a shared endeavor with people that were saved and rescued by Jesus Christ. The next thing that we see in this remarkably full description is that although this church was saved and rescued by Jesus Christ, although they were contextualizing in the city that they were in, and although they had recognized leadership, elders and deacons, they weren't actually just isolated as a local church. The next thing that we see here is that they actually had an external relationship. Rigby, can you... Can you Hold that. There is this external... Over here. Um, So there's saints in Philippi together with elders and deacons in this external relationship, in, in this external partnership. Paul gives thanks. He's full of joy for this partnership that existed with this church. And this wasn't just kind of any old partnership. What we discover in these opening verses is that this partnership had a focus. This partnership was, Sue, about gospel advance. The first thing that Paul thanks this church for, the thing that he rejoices before God about was that this church was in partnership for the purpose of gospel advance, this partnership in the gospel. And then the the sixth thing, we see the final thing, Anna, this is so appropriate, Uh, the final thing is maturity. So... So what we've got is this remarkably full summary where we've got a community saved by the gospel in Philippi together with elders and deacons in an external partnership for the purpose of gospel advance and maturity. We see the maturity piece where Paul prays in verses 9 through 11. He's praying for their maturity, that they be pure and blameless before the Lord. Now what is interesting is that This actually helps us just kind of think about our own local churches. Alex Mottier says this is a remarkably full summary of what constitutes a New Testament church. So how's your church doing with this remarkably full summary? I want to suggest to you uh, that the link can kind of break down at any point. The worst place it can break down is right at the beginning. If your church isn't made up of people who've been saved and rescued by Jesus Christ. In fact, if that is the gathering, it is not a church. So the most important thing is that there is a community that have been saved and rescued by Jesus Christ. But it's possible to have a community that's saved and rescued by Jesus Christ, but actually kind of reject an idea of of biblical leadership. It could be a church that doesn't have any elders. We don't really think leadership... uh, is, is, is appropriate. We, we just like, like to love each other and love Jesus. So we don't have elders or we don't have deacons. Like we see it in the Bible and we guess it's important, but we haven't really got around to it. So that could be an area where you're just thinking, hey, this is a remarkably full description that we don't see. Or maybe you're a, a context where you've been saved and rescued by the gospel. There's recognized leadership but really there's no external relationship. 
There may be multiple reasons why you don't have an external relationship, but for you, a description of your church would just be, hey, we're, we're saved and rescued by the gospel, we've got elders and deacons, but, but that's where it kind of finishes. Or you could be a community that's saved by the gospel together with elders and deacons, and you have an external partnership, but your external partnership isn't about gospel advance, or it isn't about maturity. Maybe it's just one of those. We've got an external relationship that's just about mission. It's just about getting out there. Or we've got an external relationship that's just about maturity. We want to become more and more godly, as if you could become godly without being on mission. But you're just focusing on one of those things. Or you could have an external relationship that's just about theological accuracy or uh, uh, ecclesiastical precision. There are numbers of things that you could be partnering about, but what we see in Philippians 1 is a remarkable full summary. Community saved by grace, contextualizing in the context that they're in, with elders and deacons, external partnership for the purpose of gospel advance and maturity, the effect of grace. When the gospel gets preached, that was the New Testament effect of the gospel being preached in a particular city. So the effect of grace. But what I want to do next is I want to look at a means of grace. Because we are all church leaders here. And I think we can all agree with up to this section of the equation. What I want to double click on is this external partnership. What I'm defining as a means of grace. Let's thank our beautiful assistants for serving us. So firstly, the effect of grace. Secondly, a means of grace. A means of grace. Our goal in gathering as church leaders is that we want to move towards maturity. We want to move towards maturity. And we see in this Philippian church, although they were a mature church, commentators agree with that. Paul isn't having to deal with any kind of major theological error within the church. They're a mature church. They have a recognized eldership team. They've got deacons in place. Although this was a mature church, they nevertheless had an external relationship. They didn't see themselves uh, as just an isolated uh, church Uh, seeking to advance the gospel in their particular context. They had this external relationship. And although this external relationship or partnership isn't prescriptive, what we do see here in Philippians chapter 1 is something that is certainly informative. It's certainly informative for us to see how Paul related to this church. And I just want to draw our attention to several things that we see in this passage. The first thing that I want you to notice about this external partnership that this Philippian church had with Paul was that it was incredibly God-centered. When Paul is writing to this church, he is very aware that the author behind this partnership wasn't the Philippian church, nor was it his involvement with the church, but actually what forged this partnership was nothing less than God himself. He was uniquely aware that God was behind this. This partnership was undoubtedly God-centered. 
Now, maybe writing to this church, that wasn't difficult for Paul uh, to get to that conclusion. It wasn't difficult because we, of course, know from Acts 16 that Paul's trying to go one way and the Holy Spirit stops him, and then he's trying to go another way and the Holy Spirit stops him, and then he tries to go another way and the Holy Spirit stops him, and then all of a sudden he gets this vision, this vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And of course, he rocks up in Macedonia and he doesn't find a man uh, but he finds a woman, a businesswoman, Lydia, who we told that the Lord opened Lydia's heart, and she becomes the first convert in Philippi. The Lord opens her heart. The next convert is the jailer, and in order for the jailer to get saved, it wasn't the Lord opening his heart, but the Lord opening the earth. Remember, there's an earthquake that takes place that becomes catalytic for the conversion of not just the jailer, but his whole family. And so as Paul is reflecting from a Roman prison about his partnership with this church, he is uniquely aware that God was at work. He was uniquely aware that actually God had catalyzed this. God had sent him to this place in the first place. He was trying to go other places. He had his agenda, but then God interrupted and said, I want you to go here. And when he was there, he was aware that actually a church was established, not because he was phenomenal and amazing, but because the Lord opened Lydia's heart, because the Lord opened the earth in order to see the jailer getting saved. Paul was uniquely aware that God had begun a good work. But more than that, he was super confident that God was going to bring it to completion. This was an inc- Paul lived with an incredible awareness that this was a God-breathed relationship. And what we find through this whole epistle is actually Paul is always pointing this church to God. He's wanting to build a confidence in God. He's, he's, he's wanting this partnership to be thoroughly God-centered. The next thing that we see about this partnership is that it is incredibly relational. Notice verse 3, Paul is praying with joy for them. Often he is praying with joy. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. He, he is, he's praying a lot for them. He loves them a lot when he prays for them. He's happy. It's not just, oh, I've got to tick that off. I guess I've got to pray for them. Such a pain, all these churches. No, he loved it. He's amped. He's excited. He is joyful about it. Notice verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. That's phenomenal, isn't it? To love all of them. That's the challenge of church leadership, right? To love all of them, not some of them, not most of them, but all of them. Paul says, I I love you all. I have you in my heart. Do you know what that means? To be in a partnership, in a gospel partnership where you're carrying somebody, you're carrying a church, you're carrying a region in your heart, you really care about it. Notice verse 8. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affections of Christ Jesus. This is incredibly relational. Paul is gushing unapologetically a gushing repeatedly. Paul cares about this. And it's not just in the opening prayer. It's not just like a moment of nostalgia at the beginning. If you read the whole letter, Paul continues to use friendship language to depict his affection for the uh, Philippian church. He is deeply relational. He cares deeply for this church. The next thing that we see here is it is about mission. It is about mission. He thanks God for the partnership that they have in the gospel from the first day until now. 
I wish I didn't have 40 minutes. I wish I had an hour and a half, and we could just go through the whole of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 is phenomenal in the way that it shows Paul's absolute intensity and commitment for the gospel to advance, for, for the gospel to go out. In, in verse 12, the next verse, he says, I want to tell you that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's in prison, but he's evangelizing from prison. He then hears about people that are preaching the gospel out of wrong and false motive. And Paul says, actually, the content's correct. I'm, I rejoice. I'm glad. The gospel's getting up. That's what I care about. There is an unrelenting commitment to the gospel going forward. He is so committed to missional advance. Unapologetically, repeatedly, right through chapter one, he just drives it home, drives it home, drives it home. Although he's deeply relational, this isn't just a love fest. It isn't just a, let's come together and sing Kumbaya and we just care for each other. No, Paul was on a mission. He was absolutely on a mission and he wanted to catch this Philippian church up on this mission. Unapologetically, he was concerned with mission. Not only was he concerned with mission, he was concerned with maturity. He wanted this church to mature. Notice verse 10, that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He is concerned that they would come to a place of maturity. He's concerned that they would grow in godliness. The next thing that we see here is that it involved others. Paul's initial jaunt uh, to Philippi involved Silas. But here he's writing Paul and Timothy. He says, I'm hoping to send Timothy to you sometime soon and, and, and really receive him. He really cares about you. And this wasn't just a one-way street. We know that the Philippian church had sent uh, Epaphroditus to him while he was in prison to serve him. So what we find here is as there's this gospel partnership, there's this beautiful interplay. There's an interconnectivity. Other people get involved. There's a, a wonderful ecosystem of care that begins to develop. This isn't straitjacket. This isn't lockdown. This isn't just relate to one person and that's it. No, there's a growing family. There's a growing network of relationships that are developing to help bring this Philippian church to maturity and to catch them up on mission. Friends, when you gather up all of this information in terms of what's happening in the interplay between the Philippian church and Paul, what ends up happening is that you get a gospel partnership. That's how Paul ends up defining it. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul uses the word partnership to describe this relationship. Listen to what Walter Hansen in his pillar commentary on Philippians writes. He says, Paul develops this concept of partnership, fellowship, in his letter to emphasize the corporate nature of life in Christ. Standing behind the English word partnership, the Greek word koinonia, conjures up a variety of close relationships involving mutual interest and sharing. Marriage, family relationships, friendship, business partnerships, common possession of property, citizenship, religious organizations were all considered to be examples of partnership in Paul's day. Paul's six references to partnership in this letter draw from these various nuances of partnership and contribute to the development of his theology of a uh, community in Christ. 
A major purpose of this letter is to transform the experience of partnership in light of the life we have in Christ. Now read all of that background to get to this point. The kind of partnership enjoyed by Paul and the Philippians in their partnership in the gospel is first of all their close association as friends who shared a common faith in the gospel. The partnership formed by mutual participation in the benefits of the gospel develop into a partnership to advance the proclamation of the gospel. The partnership of Paul and the Philippians in the work of the proclamation of the gospel bears striking resemblance to business partnerships in Paul's day. The Philippian partnership in the appropriation and proclamation of the gospel filled Paul with joyful thanksgiving whenever he thought of them. A primary purpose of the letter was to express his gratitude to the church in Philippi for their partnership with him in the advance of the gospel. Don Carson says a similar thing. Don Carson writes the following. He says, in the first century, the term fellowship or partnership was in the first instance a commercial term. Harry and Joe go and buy a boat and set up a fishing business. They have entered into a fellowship that is a partnership. They have both sunk their savings into this boat. Now they have their shared commitment towards this common goal. Do you see that's partnership? That's fellowship. That's what they've done. So the heart of true partnership is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. And it is a vision of the gospel. Christian partnership then is thus a self-sacrificing conformity to the glorious truth that has made us free in Christ. It is a vision that calls forth commitment. So when Paul gives thanks with joy because of the Philippian partnership in the gospel, he is thanking God for these brothers and sisters in Christ who from the moment of their conversion, note from the first down till now, Paul writes, rolled up their sleeves and got involved in the advance of the gospel. They continued their witness in Philippi. They persevered in their prayers for Paul. They sent money to support him in his ministry. All of these testified to their shared vision of the importance and priority of the gospel. There is a gospel partnership here. We see it in Scripture. What is interesting is, actually, if you study church history, you see these kind of partnerships actually organically developing. A little while back, I was reading uh, a book on Puritan theology, uh, Doctrine for Life, and the authors there write the following in one section. They say the following. In understanding the Puritans, we should note what Tom Webster says about the three uh, distinctives of a Puritan. He says, first, Puritans had a dynamic fellowship with God that shaped their minds, affected their emotions, and penetrated their souls. They were grounded in something and someone outside of themselves, the triune God of Scripture. Secondly, the Puritans embraced a, a shared system of belief grounded in the Scriptures. Today, we refer to the system as Reformed Orthodoxy. Check this out. Third, on the basis of their common spiritual experience and unity in the faith, the Puritans established a network of relationships amongst believers and ministers. This fellowship of cooperative brotherhood was born in 16th century Elizabethan England and developed in 17th century England and New England. 
The distinctive character of the Puritans was their quest for a life reformed by the Word of God. The Puritans were committed to the search of Scripture, organizing and analyzing their findings, and then applying it to all areas of Christian life. These guys had a genuine encounter with God, a genuine relationship with God. They had reformed understanding of Scripture, commitment to biblical truth, and then they had a gospel partnership. They had a, a cooperative brotherhood that allowed them to work together to advance the gospel. Or think about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon wrote in February 1859, there needs to be in many suburbs of London fresh gospel churches springing up. And the thing about Charles Spurgeon was he wasn't just identifying a need. He actually then organized to the fulfillment of the need. And we know that Spurgeon began a pastor's college. He sought to train leaders in order to plant churches, and he planted churches all over London. But you know what? When a group of people get together in a particular area and believe God for gospel advance, it never stays in their suburb because God's mission isn't just for that suburb or that city. It is for the ends of the earth. So this uh, l last year, we, uh, through a m an amazing series of events, had a, a small Baptist church actually join us, and we planted a site uh, right into the heart of the city. And uh, the person who's led the charge uh, on that site was Lex Lozides, who, as you know, is a, is a church history buff. He's got a brilliant uh, church history blog, uh, if you're into that. And one of the things that Lex did was he kind of researched the history of this Baptist church. And lo and behold, when he went back into the archives, he found that the original congregation and the original building of this congregation was started through funds sent by Charles Spurgeon. In fact, the original pastor, Hamilton, was trained by Spurgeon and then sent to Cape Town to plant this church. When Lex found this out, he was so excited. He was incredibly excited. In fact, I was a little bit worried he was more excited that Spurgeon was a part of the church plant than Jesus was, but I, I allowed him his excitement. But friends, what you see as you read church history is that when individuals get together and they believe God and they want to advance the gospel, these gospel partnerships happen for the advance of the gospel. And I want to suggest to you that these partnerships although not a requirement, are a means of grace. When, when the gospel advances, when God does a move, you get individuals connected together for the advance of the gospel and for the glory of God. And friends, we can settle for something less than partnership. Like, like all of us surely want to learn from everybody, right? We, we want to have a posture of learning. So we, we, we can learn from people that we don't really have any relationship with. We, we can benefit from them. We, we can associate with people, right, around particular areas. They're, 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 they're brilliant organizations that are kind of teed up to help you in a particular area. Think of the Simeon Trust. They, they focused in helping train people in order to preach the Word of God. And we can associate with that, and that can be brilliant. Back in Cape Town, we're in an association with a thing called uh, the Message Trust. And they, they have spent many, many years focusing on reaching deprived areas with the good news of Jesus Christ. And they focused on how people can move into deprived areas in order to kind of uh, be incarnational missionaries 
for those particular areas. And so Jubilee, we, we've associated with them. We, we've uh, joined hand with, hands with them in order to reach a particular suburb close to our church. But friends, I think there's something more than simply learning, more than, some, more than simply associating. I, I do believe there is a partnership, a partnership of the gospel. And friends, as advanced, what we are believing for are these partnerships in the gospel, partnerships that are defined by similar doctrine and values, partnership that's defined by shared mission. We, we committed to planting and strengthening churches, partnership that is defined by genuine relationship, partnership that is defined by recognized, suitably gifted leaders. Now, the reality is, if you've been around the block for a while, when you hear the idea of partnership, you may not be as full of joy as Paul is in the opening verses in Philippi. <laughs> not everybody is, is, is as excited as Paul is about partnership. And the reason why some people aren't excited about partnership is because partnership uh, by definition, involves some form of constraint. If you're not involved in any partnership, then your capacity to have a numerous different associations massively increases. The moment you start partnering with somebody, your, your capacity uh, to associate decreases, not because you've had a directive from headquarters, but just because a partnership does require time and commitment, and, 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 and all of us have limited time and limited capacity and so when we join in partnership, that does limit our effect to have uh, increasing numbers of association. The second reason why for some partnership isn't an exciting idea is because when genuine relationship is in play, the potential for genuine relational pain is also in play. And the interesting thing is that fact is highlighted in the Bible itself. Let's, let's look quickly at a few verses in, in, in Acts uh, chapter 15. They'll, they'll come up uh, behind me. In Acts 15 verse 36, we read the following. Uh, Dr. Luke writes the following. He says, Sometimes, uh, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of God and see how they're doing. So this statement is actually a church planting and strengthening verse. They've planted, they've preached the gospel. These communities are established. So there's church planting that's happened. Paul and Barnabas have been involved. They've partnered together to plant churches. And it's not just planting churches, they're strengthening churches. Let's go back and let's strengthen them. So there's a commitment both to planting and strengthening. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pathelomia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. So they're trying to head back to strengthen churches and Barnabas is, says, hey, let, let's take John Mark with us. He, he'll be really awesome. He'll really help us. And Paul's like, forget it. No way. That guy deserted us. He ditched us. I can't really trust him. I don't think he should be involved in strengthening any churches. And then they have a huge row that re results in them getting, uh, kind of breaking their partnership, if, if you like, and going in separate ways. But what's very interesting in this verse is you would think like after this bust up, these guys would go back and reflect and think, you know what, I think that partnership thing's a bit much. I think relationship is very costly. Like if you, like a, 
I was really committed to Paul and, and Barnabas. Uh, yeah, Barnabas says I was really committed to Paul, and, and Paul says I was really committed to Barnabas, and I've really got hurt, and so I really don't want to engage in that anymore. I, I think I'll just do a solo thing. Uh, I'll help churches, but I'll do it by myself. I won't do it in partnership. But that isn't the conclusion that they came to. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. So the functional kind of theology around partnership for Paul and Barnabas is it's better to love and lose and love again than not to love at all. These guys were committed to partnership. They, they, they were committed to genuine relationship. And even though they got burnt, even though it got blown up, they were willing to give it another crack. And of course, if we know the story, we know there is, there is a happy ending. Hey, can Mark come to me? Um, I need him. He'll be useful. There is a bow at the end. The next reason why for some people don't go for partnership is because partnership costs. Partnership costs. I believe a gospel partnership is less than covenant. It's not a covenant relationship, but it neither is it a consumer relationship. It's more than a consumer relationship, but it's less than a covenant relationship. Tim Keller defines a consumer relationship as follows. Throughout history, there has always been consumer relationships. Such relationships last only as long as the vendor meets your need at a cost that is acceptable to you. If another vendor delivers a better service or the same service at a better cost, you have no obligation to stay in the relationship to the original vendor. In a consumer relationship, it could be said that the individual needs are more important than the relationship. But friends, a gospel partnership is more than a consumer relationship. If you're just committed to the relationship for what you can get out of it, and then if somebody else can give you a better deal, you just bounce that relationship and go to that, you, you, you're living in something that is less than a gospel partnership. A gospel partnership, in a gospel partnership, we voluntarily embrace biblically appropriate downsides to the partnership that we're involved in. What I find very interesting is in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 1, uh, the new uh, CSB, Christian Standard Bible, puts it best when it says the following. Paul writes this, You are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. You see what Paul's saying? Hey, we, we've got this gospel partnership guys, and, and we're in partnership, not just for the defense of the gospel, not just for orthodoxy's sake, not just for missional sake, the advance of the gospel, but also for my imprisonment. We're in partnership for downside, not just upside. Now, in this Philippian situation, that, that had a very specific application, because Roman prisons were dreadful places. You needed people to feed you and care for you and cleanse you. So for the Philippian church, this meant Paul's in prison. We're going to need to send somebody to the prison to look after him. We're going to need to pay for his food, and we're going to need to pay that person that is going to look after them. And Paul is thanking the Lord for this partnership, a partnership that didn't just involve the upside of defending orthodoxy or advancing the gospel, but actually caring for him in prison. And friends, that... 
is a privilege to be able to do. Genuine partnership doesn't just own the upside, it values the downside. I had a beautiful illustration of this in, in, in our advanced family just earlier this year. Brian Barr and the church in Houston had gone through a really difficult time, had heard some just really tough news, and uh, it was just really tough uh, for the team there and for Brian as they're having to process this uh, difficult news. The next thing I knew on our Voxer group, there's a photo of Donnie in Houston. Like within 24 hours, what's happened? Donnie's got on a plane. He's flown to Houston to support his mate. Sacrificial. Donnie gets more sacrificial because the photo wasn't just any photo. It was a photo at a golf range. <laughs> and Donnie can hunt. Donnie can dive. Donnie doesn't like to play golf. In fact, I've been in Moorhead where I like to play golf, although I'm not very good at it, and uh, like three other team members went, but Donnie wasn't part of, wasn't part of the four ball. <laughs> and, and the guys say, like, Donnie doesn't really do golf. He doesn't, really, he, he doesn't like this at all. That's gospel partnership. I'm not, I'm, I'm not just going to get on a plane to support you, but when I, when I arrive, it's not going to be, hey, let's do something I want to do. Hey, what would you like to do? Okay, you want to go to golfing range? Like, really? Sure? Yeah, okay, I'll go. It was fun for him to watch. I bet it was. <laughs> Friends, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a consumer relationship? What can I really get out of this? Or are you looking for partnership? Partnership is downside. Partnership is the dudes in prison. I'm not talking about sin. I'm just talking about, hey, we're, we're ministry. We know what this is like. It just gets tough. It just gets hard. And leaders can be in spiritual prisons, if you like. The country situation just gets really tougher now. We've got to support them more than we thought we had to. We're, we're into partnership. We don't just celebrate the upside. We're not just in partnership for the upside of churches planted. People are getting saved. Yay! No, no, no. This is really tough. This is hard. We need to go support. We need to pull back from what we wanted to do in order to effectively help. The other downside of partnership in, in our day is the downside of accountability. In former generations, this would be a positive of partnership, right? In, in previous generations, you'd say, it's fantastic that I'm in partnership because my life is now more accountable. Uh, but the millennium bug hasn't just bitten our children, it's bitten us as well. And if we're brutally honest, we're way more comfortable with autonomy and independence than we are with accountability. And when you're in partnership, you, you are accountable. Like if you go into a business partnership with somebody, the way that they behave in that business really matters to you. It's, it's not irrelevant. But friends, partnership doesn't just have a downside, it has an upside. And the upside is this, it's genuine relationship. People really know you. I learn from all, but I'm so glad that there are people that know me. I know that I was in a in, in a context uh, just on Sunday night where somebody just pulled me aside and said, hey, you just seem a bit quiet, are you okay? And I just said, actually, I'm so enjoying everybody in the room, I'm just watching, not engaging. But they knew me well enough to say, hey, Steve, you're normally a loud mouth, and now you're quiet, what's <laughs> going on? They, they, they knew me well enough to do that. And friends, I think all of us can discern when the person really cares, right? If they really care, if it's a real partnership, you're not just a name on a list, but somebody really cares about what's happening. 
And friends, all of us need genuine relationships, genuine partnership, where there are people that are looking out for us and are seeking to care for us. More than just genuine relationship, we get shared mission. We actually get to do this together. We get to be as excited about what somebody else is doing than what we are actually involved in. My life is filled with so many high points because I'm in shared mission with so many people. I'm not just excited about the site that Jubilee's planting in the, in the City Bowl. I'm, I'm excited about what Common Ground are doing in the City Bowl because we're, we're in a gospel partnership together. They also multiply in a community there. And I'm super excited about what uh, uh, the guys are doing in Nairobi, uh, Indonesia and Tashinga. I'm, I'm, it's like I live in Nairobi because they in Nairobi. And I'm like ecstatic. I can't wait for December when the guys at Redemption Hill move into their new venue. It's just like I've been longing for them to get a new venue because it's going to be a game changer and they're going to increase their size. You know, they're going to double their capacity and God's going to fill it. It's going to be an incredible story. I really care about the fact that Grace City are going to be planting a new site next year into another conurbation in Sydney. It's, it's like I'm there already. I can't wait for it to happen. And when, when we're in relationship with each other, when we connect it, it's incredible. It, 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 it takes your life into technicolor. The wonderful thing about partnership is that we get to be together with uh, a commitment to doctrinal truths and values that we agree on. There's alignment. I can come here this week and I can know that the Bible's going to be taught unapologetically. It's awesome. We, we really do believe in leadership. We really do believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. I can come to a context where I actually don't need to filter much because I know we agree the same stuff. I can rejoice in shared fruit. I can have access to trusted leaders. I can have more focused training and, and, and relevant leadership training for the people that I'm involved in. The upsides of partnership are massive. And in fact, in this Philippian uh, opening verses in Philippian, uh, Philippians, Paul actually just mentions the upsides. He doesn't mention the downsides, which is why he concludes, not just with a gush on the means of grace that a gospel partnership is, he concludes with growing in grace. Having celebrated this relationship and this partnership, he then tells them what he's really praying about, and it's not the partnership. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's a megaton in this, but let's just go through this quickly. We've, we've run out of time. Paul prays in order to take their focus off the partnership and onto Christ. He ramps up to this by saying, I'm praying that your love would grow more and more, and that love is love for one another. So he remains his relational commitment. We'd love each other more and more, but it's also love for God. And then he prays that their theology would grow, that you would grow in your knowledge and depth of insight. He wants your knowledge of God to grow so that your love for God would grow. Michael Ramson says the idea that true love and kindness can live in the absence of truth is completely wrong. In order for our love to grow more and more, we must grow in our knowledge and depth of insight. So he prays that they would be uh, theologically muscled up. And then he prays that they would be empowered, not dependent. 
Paul is at pains to teach people not just what to think, but how to think. He prays that they would grow in knowledge of depth, of insight, in order that they may be able to discern what is best. Paul wasn't building dependency. It wasn't like, hey, I've got this partnership with you and I really need to keep you like babies because I really need you to be dependent on me. No, he's praying that they would grow in knowledge of depth of insight so that they would be able to discern what is best. He wants them to be muscled up. He's building towards an interdependent relationship, not a dependent relationship. And then finally, he's praying that they would grow in holiness. Holiness for that day that they would be pure and blameless at the return of Christ. He's aware that this isn't a self-effort thing because he makes it clear, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. This is through the gospel that we grow in godliness. We're preparing for the return of Christ. Why do we want to be pure and blameless? For his praise and glory. And so Paul doesn't land this thing on glorifying on the partnership The partnership is a means to an end. The partnership is about gospel advance. The partnership is about maturity for the glory of God, not for the sake of the partnership. And friends, we are here to glorify God. We are here this week to learn how to be better missionaries. We are here to learn and think about how we can be more mature leaders. Why? So that the name of advance can become famous, not at all. So that the name of Christ may be glorified, that He can be glorified and praised. The effect of grace, a means of grace, growing in grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to come to you this afternoon. We want to present ourselves to you. Lord, I pray that you would keep us Lord, either from being consumers or idolizing partnerships. Lord, we want to be men and women that love you and care for you and live for your glory and fame. Lord, like the Apostle Paul, we really do care about gospel advance. We really do want to see the gospel go out, individuals being converted to the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't want to be a movement that gathers Christians for your glory. We want to be a movement that proclaims the gospel and sees lost people become Christians. And then, Lord, we want to grow in maturity, in knowledge of depth of insight, so that we may be able to discern what is best, that we might be able to stand before you, whole and mature, for your glory and praise. Lord, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would keep us. And we pray for a remarkable week in your presence. Amen.